and here you come to find yourself listening to In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile. And you kick your feet up, and you're feeling good. You're feeling good. I'm Spun Counter Guy. Thanks for stopping by. This here is part two of our conversation with drummer Derek Sorrells. In the first half of our conversation, Sorrells told about his start as a no-name musician from Madisonville, Kentucky, who ended up getting gigs with such popular artists as Johnny Q. Public, Miss Angie, and Phil Joel. Eventually, this led to his forming a new band called The Frantics with longtime musical collaborators John Gilbert, Matthew Martin, and Chris Shandrow. We left off with the band signing to Organic Records. You've heard of Al Benson? Yeah. Okay. Well, he used to have a TV show, I don't know if you remember. He would have live bands on there and then guests and that kind of thing. Well, Miss Angie played on there. It was really cool because we're like, you know, this is, they told us there's over 33 million wow. people will see Excuse this me. broadcast. Sorry, I just ate some beans. <laughs> yeah. You know, it was actual, you know, stage and, you know, there was a show and um, the actual show and there's the studio and the crowd and everything. Take one, this whole thing. Mm-hmm. So we played that and it went great. Went off that hitch. Perfect. So fast forward a couple of years and we found out with the Frantics, we get the chance to play the Al Benson show. We got up there thinking we're stinking rock stars, you know. I remember I had on the shades, you know, we're all like, you know, we had the, the song we're going to play, and, and they're like, all right, uh, please welcome the Al Denton show, The Frantic. So we went into our first song, and I'm in I'm just in it. Just, and all of us are just like on 20, because like, you know, we're at the upstart of the CD being released, and it's just we're all on 100, just so excited about all that stuff. I mean, well, John, he, uh, he can have a short fuse. A lot of people, if you, don't, if you don't know John, you think he's an absolute jerk, mm-hmm. but he's really not. You just got to know him. Mm-hmm. But he does have a weird sense of um, temperament at times. So we were into the song. We make it about the first chorus, and John's amp shorts out. So we're thinking, okay, well, he goes over and fiddles with it. And they're like, all right, take two. Please welcome the Frantics. And we start into it again, and I'm still feeling good. We're still feeling good. We're thinking, all right. And we make it to about the, probably about the second verse, and John's amp goes out again. So I'm like, oh, God. And I can see John slowly getting to that point, slowly. And here's like the house band right over here behind us, you know. So he fixes it. Take three. Please welcome the Frantics. We're still doing all right, and then we get to about about the same place, and it happens again. Well, John is literally like, you know, he's really, I could tell he's really getting mad because he was the one that comes out real cocky, and he's kind of known for, like, chewing on invisible gum when he plays, like, a, that kind of thing, you know. And he comes out with this total rock star band. But by that time, he's just like, you know, just really pissed. So fourth time... Please welcome the Frantics. I remember just throwing my sunglasses down. I was so mad because, like, you know, the excitement had just gotten squashed. He's like, yay. Yeah. So, anyway, we're literally, I think, I'm, we're on the home stretch. We're close. Uh-huh. We're close to the end of the song. I think that we're going to make it. So, I'm actually feeling pretty good. And I mean, look over at Matthew and Chris, and everybody's doing good. And John's still holding it together. 
and we're about on the last verse or last chorus and does it again and john gets up gets up now and he's sitting there playing if you can imagine he's sitting there playing like this and here we are and there's the studio he walks over to his and goes boom and kicks it and it falls backwards and the set is shaking and you hear like oh like a hush in the crowd and there was this awkward silence and Al Benson's like, all right, well, we got a little technical issue, and uh, we're gonna get this straightened out, guys. Just bear with us, and we're trying to crack jokes. And Al Denson was an all right guy. He was trying to smooth things yes, over. He was trying to smooth it over. So the guitar player of the house band, he ends up letting John use his amp, and we actually do finish the song, and that's that. Well, we go out, and the way he would always have these, these, uh, obviously in the studio, you don't have the same crowd every night. So with this crowd, we found out they were from. There were a bunch of kids from these like troubled home foster care kids who had been through like abusive um, physical, mental abuse, and they were very sensitive kids. We go out to the hallway afterwards. There's kids in the hallway crying, people praying for them. A guy comes over to us and tells us that we're the cause of this. We upset all these kids. <laughs> because John kicks his amp and throws a fit. One lady tells me she saw demons dancing on my drums. Oh, wow. I get back home a day or two later, and I have a voicemail from the president of Organic Pamphlet. So say this is uh, Todd. Uh, I just got off the phone with uh, Al Denson show, and it turns out you guys did some pretty bonehead things. Well, thanks to you guys, nobody on Pamphlet Organic will ever be back, will, will ever be invited to play the show again. You guys ruined it for everybody. Wow. So we screwed it up for everybody ever playing there again. <laughs> of all the nights for that to happen, and then there would be these kids from broken homes and yeah. all these very sensitive children. And we're basically stirring up all their feelings again by, you know, John's just throwing his right. major fit. And, and still, I've never seen footage of that. You're a superstar, beaming out on the radio. You're beaming much too slow. I was sitting at home, and my youngest son, or my oldest son now, he was um, less than a year old, and uh, I'm feeding him. The phone rings, and it's Matthew, the bass player, and he's like, uh, what are you doing? You know, small talk, and I was like, you know, whatever. He talked for a minute, and then he's like, well, this was like on a Tuesday. He goes, what do you think about going to um, so-and-so city and showcasing for Sony slash Edel? I was like, oh, my God, are you kidding? So that night we showcased with... Uh, Stereo Deluxe, which is another band that was on the label, and Katie Hudson, and and us. But Katie Hudson, which was off the, you know, she was on the Pamplin label, who went on to become famous as Katie Perry. Yeah. And at the time, we were all clueless and, you know, hanging around with her and had no idea that, you know, she would be who she was. And out of all the people I met, hung out with, she is the one I did not get a picture with. I'm just like a random picture, but who would have thought to even... But you did make out with her, so that's well, something. Well, she was underage at the time, oh, so yeah. Sorry. <laughs> she was like 15, 16. Just kidding. I know. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so we showcased that night, and um, it was literally, if we went back and practiced as the Frantic, let's say we got back together and practiced, even a year past that, even if we did it, if we practiced for three months straight, the same exact set list, I don't think we could have played any tighter than we did that night. There was a magic that night. I don't know what it was, but we literally just flowed. It just, I mean, it was just probably the best set we ever played. And we only played like maybe six or eight songs. Uh -huh. 
probably six songs, something like that. Well, we found out, you know, later from the label that um, we were actually up for sale for $2 million. Your, the band? The band was up for sale for $2 million. That's how much it would have cost to buy us out of our organic pamphlet uh, contract. Wow. Did you realize you were worth that much? No, no. <laughs> but we found out how much we were going to get out of that cut, which is mind-blowing still to this day to think that the label was going to get $2 million and we were going to get a mere 75000 as a band, not a piece, as a band. But anyway, we found out that the label absolutely loved us. They loved us, but they did not know where to put us. Mm. So that kind of left us in a... You know, a slump. But we had some, um, kind of fast forward a little bit, we had some things going on. We were had just started preliminary talks with um, a well-known booking agency in Nashville. And they had started getting us a lot of shows in the books and some good pan shows. You know, I mean, for us back then, but even though, you know, still good shows and it was great venues and all that kind of stuff. And everything was going great, going really, really good. And we're getting excited because we have these potential shows, you know. We got asked to play in uh, Bay City, Michigan, where our song had actually gone number one at the, the big Christian radio station there. We played, and I think we got like $200 to play. For the whole band. Mm -hmm, for the whole band. When they booked the show, we didn't know this till later, but we found out Phil Joe was actually headlining that show. Promoter had, uh, apparently found out that the Frantics were playing with Phil Joe, so the Frantics obviously were making a stamp in Michigan area, so they thought, oh, that's the best of both worlds I'll bring. Well, we found out later that when he told them, I guess the management told them that the Frantics were not with them, they said, well, either they play you know, as either play here with, you know, open, whatever, or your band, or the Phil Joe experience doesn't happen. Wow. Which was pretty cool for us to yeah. find this out. Did that make some bad blood between y'all and Phil? Uh, there was some bad blood uh, at the end of the story. Okay. <laughs> we get up and we play this show, and, and literally the place is going nuts, and uh, we talked to actually Phil Joe's manager. Before the show, we'd kind of been in um, talks with him a bit, and he said, I'm going to take you... Uh, your CD, I'm gonna go shopping in New York next week. He was kind of a big shot in like, not in just the Christian industry, but also the so-called yeah. secular industry. So he knew a lot of the big labels, reps, and that kind of thing there. So he said, I'm going next week to New York. It's, I've got actually the video of this. They did a pro, pro shot video of that concert. And uh, I remember when we finished playing, now Phil Joe was with the Newsboys, which everybody knows if you're into Christian music, Newsboys, DC Talk, of that of that time era, they were like the bands, like, you know, the go-to bands. So anyway, when um, we finished, half over half the crowd left, yeah. which That's... made us feel like rock stars. But Did uh, you feel a little bad? Like, like come on, no, guys. not really. <laughs> not really at okay. all. Uh -uh. Um, but anyway... Um, after that show, I remember we had all these things in the works, you know. Chris, our singer, pull, pulls us to the side. And it's like, guys, I need to talk to you about something. And see, we had rode down to, uh, actually on Phil Joel's bus, down with him to Michigan, and then we rode back. So anyway, we're standing outside the bus, and he's like, guys, I need to talk to you about something. He goes, guys, I think I'm done. And it was like, what? Speechless. You know, couldn't even believe it. And we're at, you know, question him, and he basically just says, you know, um, I want to be normal. I just want to stay home and have kids, you know, wow. and be married. Well, she was married at the time. 
I remember prior to that, probably a month or so, so when we met with the booking agency in Nashville, that they told us, they said, you know, you're going to be gone a lot, you know, so because once we start booking you, we're going to start booking you, you know, those little mini tours where it could be, you know, week, two weeks, three or four days, whatever. So and I remember going to the, actually to the restroom, and Chris and I are right next to each other, and this, you know, he's in the stall, and he's like, dude, I don't know if I can do this. I was like, what are you talking about? He's like, I don't know if I can be gone like this. And I said, I said, I, I said, dude, I've got a one-year-old, less than one-year-old kid at home. I said, if you quit, I will kill you. He <laughs> <clears throat> then laughs it off. So then he tells us all that, and we're literally just like, I mean, talk about popping up a balloon. It was horrible, and there was no talking about it. Zero talking him out of it. So Chris ended up leaving um, and going um, uh, back to Illinois where he lived. And John, myself, and Matthew gets back on the bus with Phil Joel's band and are riding home to back to Nashville. And just in complete, like, you know, couldn't even believe it. I got on the phone before we left. I got on the phone and called my wife, and she was in other shock. And Matthew and John are calling their other halves. And... Everybody's just literally in shock. We couldn't believe it. So we're riding back, and um, and Phil Joel, he, he knew, he asked, he's like, you know, what happened? And we're like, you know, well, Chris Pitt, oh, that sucks. Maybe you should get you a bowl of Jack. Anyway. That was his... Uh... Yeah, that was his comforting speech. <laughs> Did you consider getting another singer? Oh, yeah, we tried okay. after the fact, and it just never really worked, never. Because, I mean, we had a chemistry that literally just was, I mean, you know how the certain people, sure. when you get together, there's just a chemistry that just is magic. Mm-hmm. Um, and just, it never happened again. Um, it was just awful, and um, John and I rode back. We get back to Madisonville, and um, of all days for this to happen, it's freezing cold, and we're in John's car. And we're probably a, maybe it's a mile and a half from my house, and his car breaks down. And I'm like, well, I'll just walk to my house <laughs> and get my car and come back and pick you up, and then we'll, we'll figure out about your car. So I remember walking in the freezing cold. I'd been sleep, sleeping on a bus all night. You know, I was wearing like a leather jacket, and my hair was all crazy. And this is like probably 6.30 in the morning, and people were thinking, who is this bum? Mm-hmm. So anyway, I'm walking back to my house, and... I remember Alex was uh, so excited to see me because I've been gone for you know, a couple of days or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so he, you know, runs to me and, you know, hugs and all this stuff. And, and of course, I had to turn right around the car. And, and I'm like, you know, this was absolutely awful because all this stuff with the band, everything I had dreamed of and gotten this far, and it had, you know, just collapsed. And I went in to grab the keys and told my wife what was going on and said I'd be back in a little bit. And then as I'm pulling out of the driveway, Alex is at the door with his hands on the storm. I'll never forget it. He's his hands on the storm door, uh, the glass just bawling his eyes out, thinking I'm leaving again. Aww. It was just like it was an awful, awful day. And I remember the the next morning waking up and thinking it was. I think I thought I had a bad dream. I was like, oh, that's a that's a you know, it's bad. But in a way, him crying then that kind of like maybe reinforce. It almost made it worse, the whole uh, thing, because, see, I felt like crying. I felt like crying. I felt like going out and strangling somebody. (laughs) His name starts with a C and ends with a Hriss. Um, I mean, like, his decision to to want to have a family. He didn't have a family other than his wife. Right. He's like, I just want to stay home and be normal and just be normal. As you look back now, do you see that maybe? No. no, I don't at all, because, you know, if he had that drive, which... I went on to play another three years, and I had two kids at home. And there was lots and lots of musicians 
you know, even back then, five years ago, ten years ago, currently, you have kids. It's just part of your, your job. It's kind of like being, you know, over-the-road truck driver. You've got kids at home. You can't say, well, I can't take the truck out. Mm-hmm. It's just part of your gig. And if, you're, if your kids understand and your wife understands, it shouldn't be an issue. And if you have that relationship to where it works out, it shouldn't be a big deal. But anyway, it would have really been nice for him to let us know before, before we got that far. Because, I mean, literally we had done so many cool things and so many cool things were on the horizon of happening. Do you still talk with him? Not very often. We did a reunion show about three, about three years ago, mm-hmm. and uh, it was okay. I mean, it was decent. There's still a little, you know, kind of uh, unmentioned yeah. awkwardness, tension yeah. there. Right. Um, and we still, um, I remember, like for years, like. Like, we're talking like a year or two after the band broke up. I would call him every few months. Man, let's, come on. Let's try this again. I said, we'll just do weekends. How about just weekends? Or how about maybe even just a Saturday night? We'll go out and book this, you know, again. Mm. No, man, I just don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. And I remember our record label president, it's kind of changed, switching gears a bit, because we still had one more record we were to record. Like contractually? Right. Yeah. Yeah, I think it was two firm with three options. So we um, still had this record to record. Well, f- well, he calls, John and I were actually, I was given drum lessons at this music store in, in Madisonville, and, and uh, John was given guitar lessons. And the phone rings one day, and uh, John answers, and I would have done the same thing. But it's, it was our the president of the label, he knew how to get a hold of us there. And he calls us, and before he could really get anything out, John tells him, Chris quit. And he goes, well, you made my job a lot easier uh, because the label is folding. Uh, and, and, but they would have had to given us our advance for the next record. So we just <laughs> shot ourselves in the foot there and was out some money. And then we find out later, of course, not that much longer after that, that the master tapes, he calls or somebody from the label calls and says, that they're for, you know, we got them for sale. What we can get, let you guys have the master tapes to that album, do whatever you want with them, $500. Of course, none of us had five hundred dollars, you know. And now, oh my gosh, if somebody, if I, and who knows, they're probably in the dumpster, just <laughs> disintegrate. Just, I mean, who knows where they're at? It was a very dark time. It's terrible time. So we I went through this lull where we were trying to play with. Uh, another singer and it went you know it went, we played some shows that we're still under contract to do with john as the singer and if you knew john's voice he sounds like tom Kiefer from cinderella or bon scott or brian johnson from yeah. acdc so it really didn't fit the poppy you know cars type you know thing we had going but then we tried to get with another singer and we played a few shows but that just never really jailed you know, there was you know nothing wrong with him as a person, a great guy, just never really felt the same way again. So we all pretty much gave up the idea of that band and really had stopped playing really much of anything. And then one day I get a call out of the blue, and this was I think in 2002, because we broke up in 2000. I get a call from Jamie Rowe from Guardian, mm-hmm. who I was a you know I was a fan of. I, we had uh, done a small tour with them, and I was with Miss Angie, so we were all kind of you know knew each other. So he calls me, and because uh, Guardian wasn't really active at the time, and he calls me. and He goes, "What do you guys think about you know 
getting together and starting a band. And it was like, what? Because, I mean, Jamie's vocals are just like, yeah. I mean, he can sing anything. Get up, get down, you're at the rock show. Wanna hear you scream? Plug it in from Malibu to Soho. Now party's in between. And I'm like, oh, yeah. So I called John and Matthew. They were on board. We get together. It's sounding great. Everything is going good. And so we uh, scrounge together some money and we start playing shows. And then we uh, get this money together to go record a CD called The New Sensation. started getting a lot of local airplay and some regional airplay and we started playing shows really kind of all over we we kind of dabbled in a few christian shows but we weren't a christian band at all mm -hmm. i mean um not saying that we were like sacrificing ghosts just <laughs> just the concept of you know because a lot of people think oh well you weren't a christian man yeah. you must have not been out with yeah. winning souls <laughs> no we were just but anyway you know that concept yes. that idea yeah. um so we went out and played and showcased and um LA and we went to showcase at the the green room and I remember Jet had just played the night before I know you're familiar with Jet mm -hmm. we uh, saw them the night before and uh, and then afterwards they uh, were outside and it was just time we were totally like we're standing outside of uh, was it the green room yes yeah, the green room and it's right there and the, you can see like the Hollywood sign and we're like you know standing out there and I'm thinking gosh this is crazy I mean because I've been to LA before but I don't know something about the way the sun had set that night and it was just a feeling in the air here's the guy you know in jet the guys in jet just sitting here talking like it's you know we're right next to him of course the people are people but mm -hmm. it's still when you see people up on this pedestal you automatically think oh my god mm -hmm. and I remember it was one of those rock star moments the drummer, I don't know if anybody that's listening uh, was a fan of, uh, of Jet at all, they knew that the, um, the drummer always wore like a captain's hat when we get up there and play. So I remember Jake gets up there and they just kill it. And I wasn't really into Jet much because Matthew had told us. Matthew was really into like current bands. He would like tell us about these up and coming bands and that kind of thing. And we're standing outside and we're just kind of shooting the breeze or whatever. And here comes the drummer run out the front door. There is a blonde, as pretty as they come, in a convertible, sitting right underneath, like, you know, there's the sunset and there's the Hollywood sign. And he takes off and just jumps in the passenger seat of this convertible, throws his cap set in the back seat, and they just peel out and just take off into the sunset. And it was just like, <laughs> oh my gosh, you cannot get any more rock star than that right there. Right. <laughs> We showcased the next day for Columbia, and I can't really remember who else. It went fine. We, we you know, it went good, but we never got really the feedback that we wanted. We ended up signing with um, Atenzia. It was a Swedish European label. That was Jamie and knew some people over there. They loved the CD. And well, let me back up. Here we go. This is right. Before this, on our independent release, The New Sensation, Jamie had found out that Gene Simmons from KISS was starting back up Simmons Records. And he was just taking um, submissions for you know unknown bands. Mm -hmm. So Jamie sends our CD, and I was like, yeah, you know, I thought, that's awesome, but we'll never hear anything back. Mm -hmm. He sends it off, we don't hear anything for maybe a month or so. First, he got a, an email from Angus Vale, who was Gene Simmons' manager, also Ringo Starr's manager, all these different people. And, but he got an email saying that Jamie was very interested in the band. 
loved the sound, loved the voice, and we even saw on his, on his website, very excited, pumped about this new band from the Midwest. Midwest, great lead voice, details coming soon. It's really like, holy God. And Jamie, if you know Jamie at all, Jamie doesn't get intimidated by anyone. He's literally just, not that he's a jerk, he's just very in charge type of person. Mm-hmm. And he, he's got the sense of humor of just, for instance, I'll give you a, a uh, a, a Jamieism. A Jamieism. We were playing like at the local radio station here in town. Had actually got us a gig playing in Owensboro for like this fundraiser. And she's like, "Oh, I'll get you. You know, start getting you these little shows." We thought so. We had played some cool shows around the riverfront. Did Jamie live around here? He lives in Fort Branch, Indiana, oh, okay. which is about an hour and twenty from here. He lives in Nashville, back in Nashville now. We pulled up, and I mean, it's an absolute dive bar. And we're like, "Oh God, where are we at?" Not that we haven't played them before, but certain ones you pull up to and you're like, oh, I don't feel good about this. So anyway, we, we go in and as soon as we walk in, of course, we were all like dressed like, you know, like, you know, people that play rock music. So we walk in and and there's these guys that look like inflated Waylon Jennings, you know, I mean, like they uh, <laughs> they look like uh, they, they had like bellies out to here. And um, like these black leather vest on, and the you know the type that rests their guitar on their belly, oh, basically man. playing up on top. You know, like yeah. cowboy hats, and they're the, doing the whole whole charade. And we're like, oh god, they're, they're playing. They're playing. Oh. So it's like you know a combination of other ba- of bands and raising money for this whatever it was yeah. for obesity. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and they were the headliners. But uh, so anyway, we're thinking, oh god, we're gonna go over like crap. This is awful. So we get up there and we start playing. And first song, the owner of the club, promoter, whatever, they're screaming obscenities at us. Stop. Turn the blanking music down. You're too blanking loud. You know, I'm serious. you got to stop this blank right now. So we turn down a little bit. They keep going. And people are booing at us. Oh, no. And we're playing great. I mean, not trying to be cocky, but, I mean, right. we were a great band. And Jamie's very, very quick-witted. And he knows how to get out of situations. So... Jamie's wife at the time was in the front row. So Jamie goes, okay, I have everybody's attention for a minute. And he goes, tonight's a very special night for me. And we're like, what? What are you talking about? <laughs> and uh, he's like, I'd like to call my girlfriend Heather up here to the stage. And so Jamie puts his guitar on the stand and he gets down on one knee and he goes, Heather. She's standing there and goes, Heather, this is something I've had on my mind for a long time and just find the one the right time to tell you. And he gets down on one knee and goes, Heather, Will you marry me? <laughs> she was like, yes, because she knew how to take him and knew. She played right along. The crowd was like, and from then on out, it was perfect. Everybody wow. loved us. Anyway, Jamie has a missed call. He has a voicemail from Gene Simmons. Hi, Jamie. It's Gene Simmons. Listen, I did get your CD, I did listen to it, and I have to tell you that, you know, while the first few tunes appeal to me, my concerns about the band are the age, the band in their 30s doing this kind of stuff. So, Jamie calls me, and like I said, I've always been just a KISS freak. So he calls me, and I remember I was getting Alex, I was pouring him a glass of milk, and he's telling me that about Angus Vale, the manager for Gene Simmons, and then about how he had a voicemail from Gene Simmons. And so I'm literally pouring Alex a glass of milk, and I could not even pour it. I was so nervous and excited. I could not even believe it. But I remember pulling up to the music store one morning, and um, it was, all this was still fresh. And I was listening to Kiss Alive too. I'll remember it. 
And I remember there's like an opening, uh, the announcer, like, you are the best, you've got the best, hottest man in the world, guess. <laughs> and I remember that comes on. I remember like pulling in the parking lot of the music store and literally tears are streaming down my face. I could not even believe it. I'm like, I can remember basically worshiping this band as a kid. And now here you fast forward so many years later and we're in talks to, you know, whatever. So anyway, we were to open for Striper in St. Louis. Wow which was a, a great opportunity. Uh, before that show that day, Gene Simmons actually called Jamie because they had been playing phone tag. He called Jamie, and Jamie meets with us. I remember we drove up and met like at this McDonald's because we were going to like drive separately because he lived the, you know, towards that direction. And Jamie is visibly shaken. Like, like guys, I just, uh, I just got off the phone with Gene Simmons. Oh, God. <laughs> he is like talking to a drill sergeant. And he's like, you know, this is like, it was unreal. He's like, he said, uh, what was the, the names of the bands that, were, that London Calling, what we had thought about before? Pop Gun. Pop Gun. <laughs> That's it. That's one. Okay. So Jamie's like, um, Gene Simmons says to him, and, and well, how did you get your name? And, Jamie, and Jamie's like, well, we, Joe Strummer just passed. We thought it was kind of a, kind of a tribute to him, Joe Strummer, and, and you know, just the, the right time to call him. And he goes, well, it's horrible. So London Calling. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He said, it's horrible. He goes, uh, that's, that'd be like me calling my band Afghanistan. He goes, none of you guys are from London. And, and Jamie, Jamie's like, oh, yeah, you're right. He goes, well, we had thought about calling it Pop Gun. He's like, Pop Gun? He goes, God, that's even worse. <laughs> and he's like, uh, and so he's literally like just, you know. He named a song Love Gun. Come on. Yeah, I know. So he's like, he tells Jamie, he's, he said, I can make any phone call right now and get you on tour with any band in the world. He said, any band. He said, I have endless amounts of money. He said, I can do whatever I want, basically. Mm-hmm. But what we found out is um, Simmons Records was actually under the umbrella of Roadrunner Records, which, crazy enough, was who I showcased with, with Johnny Q. It's weird how it all kind of ties in. Uh-huh. But he said he wanted to see the band play live. And it was crazy enough, we were going to open for Striper. So we had that show videoed. Overnight, the, the video VHS to him. And he says he loves the band, you know, he loves the kind of thing we're doing, but he's not sure guys in their 30s should be, you know, it's really going to be selling, you know, this kind of stuff would sell. He says, right now I have no other plans, but I will see you in town. Because we were supposed to meet them. They were on the Kiss and Aerosmith. It was the Kiss and Aerosmith tour at the time, which we had four comp tickets, courtesy of Angus Vale. So anyway, we were kind of driving to the show thinking, okay, because he said I have no other plans. So can I ask, mm-hmm. after all the disappointment you've had up to this point, mm-hmm. almost maybe in the back of your head, you're like, okay, I'm not going to get my hopes up on this. It was almost impossible not yeah. to. It okay. was just so hard because, I mean, just of all the potential. And we had actually heard from other people, on the, some of the road crew, Jamie knew, some of the road crew was on the KISS tour and said that Gene Simmons actually talked about us a lot. Wow. Like he was really excited because he, he loved discovering new talent. You know, because he was responsible for discovering like Van Halen and a lot of these bands, so he was really excited about us. So we go and they were doing the you know co-headlining thing to where Errol Smith's first one night, Kiss the first the next night, whatever. So anyway, Kiss plays first that night. So we have like you know great seats when we're literally just like five rows back, and they get out there and play, and of course I'm just in shock that we're gonna meet with him but then of course to see kiss was still just amazing and that's this was back around the time of like the the gold and the platinum passes you know you paid a hundred dollars to meet them you pay five hundred dollars to get your picture made and get stuff autographed and all this stuff 
<laughs> so they finish playing, and Jamie's phone rings. And he's like, you can come on backstage, come to the VIP area, meet and greet area, and um, we, we can set you up to meet with Gene. So we're walking up to this meet and greet area, and literally there is like a sea of people outside, you know, just dying to get in. There's security guards there, you know, and we kind of, I think it was Jamie walked up to him, walked up to him and said, um, and the guy's like, can I help you? And he goes, oh, we're London Calling. Oh, you're London Calling? Oh, okay, yeah. All right, come on, guys. And it moves everybody back. <laughs> and we're like, so we're walking through this sea of people, and people are just like, come on. It's like, <laughs> you know, you're somebody. <laughs> and we walk in, and they're like, okay, just stand here. Gene will be with you in just a few minutes. Yeah. Literally from here, probably 15, 20 feet away, there's Kiss. And they're signing, full makeup. Full makeup, uh-huh. signing autographs. And, of course, Ace Freely had left the tour at the time, so it was Tommy Thayer. So there was Gene and Paul, and Peter. And I was thinking, how did I get here? I feel like I'm just going to pass out, just from the excitement and the unrealism of the whole thing. They lead us to this hallway, and then around the corner, here comes Gene Simmons in full garb, full get-up, still got the dried blood and the boots. He's like 80 feet tall. And, but then he sees one of his groupies first. So we're standing there hearing this conversation. You know what they're saying he's like he takes his hand again if i'm lying i'm dying he takes it down the back of her skirt between her legs and it's literally just you know wow fondling i guess the best way you want to say it, and right. talking to her talking like like politics or <laughs> yeah, current yeah, events or something yeah current events yeah like Yo, what do you think about the weather out <laughs> yeah <laughs> have you heard the new kiss record it's really good but he's like uh, did you get what the doctor ordered which is kind of a play on words for their song calling dr love uh-huh that you get to what the doctor ordered. That's what he's really saying. Yes. And we're like right there. And I'm like, we're just like, oh, this is awkward. And uh, then he's like, uh, he goes, do you know what, uh, you know, you know what hotel to go to, right? She goes, yes. And uh, he's like, all right, there's a limo outside, okay. And then he's like, all right, I'll see you in a little bit. And takes his hand. And then he walks over. How you doing? I'm Gene uh, Simmons. Literally, that happened. Sticks his hand out. Sticks his hand you. out. I mean, you can't be like, dude, wash your hands. I don't know who this girl is. But so we just had to stick our hand out and, hey, how you doing? And, and that's the story of how you got herpes. Pretty much. On your hand. Yeah, yeah, that was, that was it. Yeah, I held on to these girls. So it was kind of bad. <laughs> he's like, I'm Gene Simmons. Yeah, <laughs> oh, really? You. Glad you introduced yourself because I didn't know who you were. Um, but anyway, um, so he proceeds to tell us that um, he loves the band he, he loves the songs, and I was 31 at the time. Matthew, I think, was 20, which I should say in London Calling, it was the same three, bass player, drummer, and uh, guitar player from the Frantics. And Matthew, I think, was maybe 25, 24, somewhere in there, and John was like, I think, 28, I don't know, I'm just kind of, and then Jamie was like 33, 34. So he says, you know, love the sound, love the everything, but I, you guys are just, I don't, it's, I can't market this. It's like if Chad Kroger called me right now and wanted me to sign him, I wouldn't do it. They're too old. He's like if John Bon Jovi called me right now and, and wanted me to sign him, I wouldn't do it. He's like, I just wouldn't do it. They're too old. I'm thinking, what are you talking about? These guys, even though I don't like Nickelback in any way possible, so it's like those guys are still millions of records. Bon Jovi, of course, is yeah. Bon Jovi, yeah, but he's like, I wouldn't have anything to do with him. I wouldn't touch him. He tells us that um, what we should do is to to hire a group of 19 and 20 year old kids that look 19 and 20 and are the size of toothpicks to get up and um, we still own the rights to the songs and the name, 
but we basically hire them out as puppets, basically to go out and promote the music, but we collect the money. And, you know, we kind of left it at that and said it was nice meeting you and all this stuff. And talk about going home felt like you'd just been... I mean, you can't get much closer than that. Because right. literally it felt like, you know, I had been since whatever year, 1993, and this was 2003, or whatever I had been climbing this mountain mm -hmm. climbing 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 I almost get the top I slip yeah. fall back down or some goat kicks you in the face yes that's and then I felt like I got to the I was just about to reach the very top mm -hmm. and I was gonna pull myself up I'm like I'm finally here and then here comes Gene Simmons with the demon boots just like nope <laughs> and kicks me all the way back down to the bottom I just laying on my back and I'm, I've been there ever since sometimes it's just hard to be especially when So uh, that actually answers my next question. Do you think, like, well, this is it? I'm never going to have a chance like that. Well, we, we did sign with uh, the European label, um, Swedish label, uh, Atenzia, and, and it was very cool. Um, <laughs> their logic way of thinking on certain things, because we, they were sending us back over copies of the artwork. And even the copy of the artwork to this day is terrible. It's awful. It's like a cartoon character flying through the air holding a flying V guitar. It's like, what is that? And they gave us a small advance. And anyway, but one of the covers they sent over was um, a woman holding an armadillo. <laughs> and then there was another one of this guy with like a, a pig's nose. And they suggest we call the album Snout. I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> Snout. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, it made no sense. So anyway, but we did that record and... Uh, you know, it did decent, and uh, we got a few sh good shows out of it. But and then Matthew kind of lost interest. He quit. We kind of really just just fell apart after that and wanted nothing to do with it. And that was really the last band that I did professionally, I guess you'd say, in quotes. Um, and then a few years later, we kind of got the itch to play again. And we started playing with... Um, we did an 80s cover band. We put on the wigs. We played all 80s. Yeah. And I will tell you what, it was crazy. At first, I thought it was a crazy idea because it was actually, we back up, it was the guy that used to play in Homesick, and then he went on to play with Johnny Q Public. And then he, so, but anyway, we were still kind of in contact. He was from Slaughter's, Kentucky, but it was living in Springfield, but they were going to move, be moving back this way. So he calls back, and he's like, calls us when he's moving back down here, he said, like, what do you think about starting an 80s band? I'm like, what? My point being is, at first when I thought he was crazy because I thought we'd be stoned to death, you know. First, especially the first gig we ever played, I thought we were going to be killed. But it turns out everybody, there was a good crowd there that night. And here we are walking in this dive, you know, kind of a country boy bar, which mm -hmm. turned out to be like our number one place to play later. Mm -hmm. But and there was a good crowd there that night. And I remember just, I had on like lipstick and, you know, and a red wig and a bandana. And they were all, you know, warrant uh, and metal. poison, that kind of stuff. So uh, but we found out later the reason there was such a good crowd there, they were all there at Hickless because they, cause it was basically like an open mic night. And by the time we finished, everybody loved us, and they came and told us, well, you guys are amazing. Mm -hmm. We came to heckle you. <laughs> but what's crazy about that band is I made more money playing in a cover band, putting on a wig, than I ever did playing in an original band, being on a label. Right. I mean, you could go and play, you know, two hours a night for two nights in a row and, you know, get like $2,800. And you're driving just down the road, mm -hmm. whereas you drive 16 hours and you're, you're begging people to buy your T-shirts and your CDs. Yeah.
So in conclusion, mm-hmm. are you glad it all happened? Absolutely. Especially when you, you know, to the normal people you're around who don't really have that drive. They don't really understand how close I was to achieving something that I worked so hard for. And literally, you know, I thought, you know, it was going to bring me to, you know, financial gain and notoriety. And if the band fell apart, you know, then I could maybe play with another band or do session work and all this kind of stuff. Coming down from that is really, really tough. I mean, I struggled with it for a long time. I invested every bit of energy, money, everything you could possibly think of in those years to get to those things I was talking about, you know, and then for it to all just to be like, all right, that's over, close the door. All right, now go on and get your real job. Okay, do something normal. Now be normal. What are you doing for a living now? Uh, I actually saw advertising for a newspaper, but I tried to... You know, keep hope there for a while, but in the back of my mind, I really knew that it was never, ever going to happen again. And uh, I've heard people tell stories similar to yours. Mm-hmm. They'll say, well, it all happened for the best. Mm-hmm. Do you think that? that... At, at, in certain aspects, I kind of think maybe because I guess the best way I can put it is I think if I had gone to the mainstream because of like, that's the type of person I am, I could have seen me kind of maybe going off the deep end. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really the only thing I can think of that maybe been like, well, it didn't happen because of that. Um, yeah, maybe you dodged a bullet. Right. But, you know, getting back to it, it's just, you know, people are like, well, just move on. Things happen, you know. And it's not like, you know, getting laid off from a job. You know, it's such a huge come down. And unless you've been there, you don't understand it. You know, people just wanted to act like that it's, oh, well, mm-hmm. oh, well. No, not oh, well. That's right. the last 10 years of my life, and I came this close so many times, and I played for thousands of people i've had you know all these record deals and all this stuff and i'm supposed to be doing this you know for another 10 years whatever Mm -hmm. and then it just stops and i have uh, i have no money to show for it all i've got is a stack of pictures cds uh some old videotapes and herpes of course (laughs) and mental scars from all the being accused of demons but you know looking back on all of though i'm very thankful but it's kind of like cocaine A lot of people said, and even though I've never tried cocaine, I mm-hmm. promise I'm a stack of albums. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I swear on an Earth, Wind, and Fire record. Yeah, I swear on an Earth, Wind, and Fire record. That, uh, I never tried it, but let's say once you get that taste, you want more, you want more, you want more. Well, that's the way it is when you, once you you know reach just even this, this much success, and then a little more, and you want more, and you want more, and you want more. And then all of a sudden, it's just like you have you go into withdrawals, and you're like, there's yeah. nothing, you know, and... And if I can give one bit of advice to any musician out there that's trying to make it, don't hang on people's words. I can remember quitting a job one time, years ago, quitting a job just to meet with a potential manager, and we show up and the, and the guy's not even there. But I mean, being young and naive and stupid, and we were all young, naive and stupid during the frantics, and a manager that was actually working with us, he actually was the manager for Tracy Bingham, the Playboy Playmate. She okay. was on like some of the um, some of the reality. I just shows. read the articles. I didn't really. Saw I the never girls. saw much of the yeah. pictures either. I always, yeah. whenever I bought a copy, I was like, "Is this the one that doesn't have pictures?" And they're like, "Yes, okay, that's the one." I okay, want. yeah. <laughs> but and anyway, but he's out in L.A. and um, he's starting to want to book us these shows. And he's like, I remember him telling us, "He's like, you know, before too long, you know, you guys just be coming out, hanging out at the Playboy Mansion." And we're like, oh, 
What? And he knew all these movie stars and all this stuff. And you went to the phone and called your wife. Guess what? We're yeah. gonna hang out the play we're, we're, gonna, we're, gonna, we're gonna hang out in the grotto tonight. She was very excited. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. For the record, she's sitting right here. Yeah, that's why I have to get tight lips. You're giving a disapproving face. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we, um, well, as management, this is another plays into the whole being so stupid and green and dumb and just ignorant about so many things. He was wanting, can you believe this? He was wanting to take 10% of our show earnings. How dare he? Pretty good rate, isn't it? Oh, it was great. Yeah. Because, I mean, if we're getting like two grand for a show, you know, yeah. we're Christ at that time, we're thinking it's like, you know, he's basically getting all the money. So we come to the conclusion, great idea, let's fire him. <laughs> so I remember we all like, you know, drew straws. numbers, straws, whatever, and John ended up. We are from some hotel in Florida or wherever we were, and he gets on the phone and calls him and tells him that, you know, you're fired. And it was just like a bonehead move. You know, I mean, we had a guy that was connected in L.A., and then, but you're thinking about your, you know, your $200. <laughs> that's like your $50 a piece. That's not going to go in your pocket. Right. When, but anyway, that's... But I'm, I'll say this at the end. I'm very, very thankful for everything I got to do, even though it didn't turn out the way I wanted I can still look back on all that stuff and be very, very proud of it and know that I signed those record deals, something I never thought in a million years I would do, and I was able to do all this by living in Kentucky, which is nuts, because most of the time when people are trying to make it, they have to move, you know, and then they're struggling and all this kind of stuff. Do I wish it had gone farther? Absolutely. I sure do. One more question. When, you, when all this was finally over, was it painful for you able to hear any music? I didn't want to have anything really to do with the type of music that we played. Yeah. Yeah, like, but I did want to, I still obviously, I'm still obsessed with music and always have been, but I remember being kind of in a more melancholy mood. Just mm -hmm. I didn't really hear, wouldn't hear any like major power pop or, I was, it was either like melancholy, really old 70s, 80s country, uh -huh. George Jones. Yeah. <laughs> Loves the guy's brilliant still to this day. I think he's Drew Tank Groceries. Uh huh. There you go. That's one of my favorite songs. Yeah. Uh, and thrash metal. And I just remember, <laughs> it, yeah, it was literally like, because I'm the type of person I can go from Barry Manilow to Slayer. Yeah. It doesn't bother me. But now to this day, like, still, like, because we did like the Hollywood Gutter Rats, that cover band I was talking about. We played that, we did that for about six or seven years. And then I just reached a burnout with that. We all did, basically. I used to just obsess over drums. Um, before I even started uh, playing with Miss Angie, I had my own drum shop. But literally now, I have no interest in even playing, really, at all. So, when's the last time you played your drums? Oh, I don't even know. When's the last time? There's been, like, various times you'll just kind of sit down and play for maybe a minute, but actually played i'd say every bit of six months so it's still painful to you yeah it's just kind of it's i'm just kind of like burned yeah. you know i just feel like i'm just burned it's like and you know people tell me man you, you know come on don't and don't let all that ruin it and i shouldn't really i know i shouldn't and used to like you could not turn my switch off like for mm -hmm. music and for drums now you can't even find the switch mm -hmm. you could hire a private investigator to come in and look for, <laughs> for the switch. musical switch and they'll be like oh we give but, up we've been here for months <laughs> right but you know and i, I bet gene could find it with his creepy hand <laughs> yeah his, his uh his you don't know where it's been hand yeah well i saw where it's been hand <laughs> Uh, <laughs> but uh yeah that was you know <laughs> that's hilarious i'm sorry that oh, you painted such a great picture of that oh well, you should have been there you know yeah. to see from 
her crotch to my hand, you know, and, and Matthew's hand, Jamie's, John's. Well, cool. Thanks for taking the time. Thanks very much for having me. I hope it all kind of at some point makes sense because it's been so many years since all I've right. really talked about a lot of it. Well, that's the end of Mr. Sorrell's story for the time being. If you want to reach out to him, you can find him on Facebook. Or, if you're up for the adventure, you can drive to the tiny town of Providence, Kentucky to meet with Derek face-to-face in his record shop called The Record Groove. And we'd like to make a correction on something that was said on the first part of our interview. Oren Thornton did not write the song Jesus Freak, but he did play on its recording. Sorry about that. And if you're still in the mood to hear some more music stories, you might check out In the Corner Back by the Woodpile, episode 125 where we talk with John J. Thompson, whom started the True Tunes music publication back in the late 80s and oversaw its operation on through the 90s. In the corner, back by the woodpile, it's produced by a closet, a pocket, and a suitcase. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter by looking up Spun Counter Guy. If you want to say hi or send us nasty words, you can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. And you can find this podcast on iTunes and Stitcher and podbean.com. We'll see you on the flip side.